0: All right, if you will, if you will open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7. My name is Zach. For those of you that don't know me, uh, way to go coming to church on Labor Day weekend. You're awesome. We have been talking about uh, the healing ministry of Jesus over the last several weeks as a community. We're studying through the gospel of Luke and we're learning about Jesus and his ways and his kingdom. And we're in a series of texts in Luke where again and again and again, we see Jesus healing people. It's been powerful. we see that the desire and the will of God is to bring healing. That's amazing. Jesus is awesome. We saw last week how to pray for the sick and not just pray for the sick, but to minister healing. He was very inspiring and engaging. And yes, Lord, let's do it. Today, Luke takes us into a bit of a different scene a bit of a different story than what we've been looking at, but it's about healing nonetheless. And as we turn there, I wanna ask you a question. Have you ever prayed for someone who was sick and they did not get healed? Oh, we got got a few, okay. (laughs) Have you ever prayed for something or believed God was leading you to do something that fell flat on its face or didn't work out like you thought? All right, this is the most talkative y'all been all year. I know what to, know what to do. Okay, have you ever been through a season or period of doubt in your life where you doubted God, His existence, His goodness, your own faith? You ever been through a season of doubt? Okay, there we go. Uh, Have you ever been through a season of depression where it's more than just a bad day, but it feels like the clouds are all around you all the time. If you've been there, if you've experienced that, you are going to connect with today's story. What we're going to see is a great hero of the Bible who experiences a a time period of disappointment in God, of doubt about God, of some would even say depression. And we're going to see how Jesus responds to him. So there are three characters in our story today. And to set up the story to help you understand what's going on, I want to give you a little background on each of them. First character is Jesus. He's the main character of the Bible. If anybody ever asks you who's the main character of this Bible story, you can just guess Jesus. You'll be right about 80% of the time. And uh, he is the main character. In fact, the Bible is about him. The Bible not primarily about you and me and what we need to do. It's primarily about him. And what he's done and what he's going to do. And we find who we are by looking at him and and feeding off of who he is. So we're going to see Jesus. We're going to see John the Baptist. We'll come back to John the Baptist in just a moment. Uh, We read about him earlier in the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to see John's disciples. Disciples, just if you're unfamiliar with the term, is like a student or an apprentice or a protege. Uh, And so people would have, these religious leaders would have disciples, people that would say, hey, I want to be with you and I want to learn from you. I want to be like you and I want to eventually do the things that you're doing. I want to do the ministry that you have. John had disciples. Jesus had disciples. We're going to hear about John's disciples today. Now back to John. When you think about John the Baptist, uh, it's a bit of a confusing name. Like, was he actually Baptist or how did he get that name? He wasn't Baptist, but part of his ministry was based around baptizing People. So it might be more appropriate to call him John the Baptizer. That is a part of his ministry, as people were repenting from sin and turning to God, they would, he would baptize them. And that was a significant mark or an aspect of his ministry. He's different than John the Apostle or John the Beloved. He didn't. He's not the John that wrote the Gospel of John, first, second, third John or the book of Revelation. This is different. That guy's referred to as John the Apostle, John the Beloved. We're talking about John the Baptist today. He was the cousin of Jesus. We learned that at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He was born kind of in a miraculous way. His his father was a priest. His parents were barren. And one day as his father is in the temple going through the, the religious ceremonies they needed to do. An angel visits him and speaks to him. and says, Zachariah, you are going to have a son. Your wife is going to become pregnant. Even though you're old, even though you're barren, God is going to give you a child. And this child is not just going to be an ordinary child. He has a prophetic destiny on his life. That he is going to be a prophet of God. That he is going to lead his nation to repentance. That he's going to prepare the way for the coming of God's Savior who is coming into the world. So John had this incredible prophetic destiny over his life. He wasn't in the mainstream of society. He was around the fringes. He lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and and honey and wore like, you know, camel skins. He was kind of an out there guy. But there was anointing and there was power and there was truth on his life. So as he would preach, people's hearts would be changed. His preaching style was unorthodox, like the beginning of Luke gives us one of his most famous sermons that opens speaking to the people around them. You brood of vipers. That's what he calls them. What an opening line for a sermon. But rather than people running away being like, who needs this guy? There was something there was something in his life, some love that he had for people and authenticity in his relationship with God that gripped people. And spoke to them and drew them in. And he would lead people to repentance. He was a contender for justice. Can we put that painting up of John? I think this will help you visualize him. He contended for justice. He fought against greed and taking advantage of the poor. He fought corruption in the economic structures of their day. He fought for people to be treated with equity and justice. He was a man that fought and had a heart for justice. Some of you have a heart for justice in our society. You could look at John and be like, I like that guy. I'm with that guy. That's what he was about. He talked about this coming one, the Messiah, who is going to come and heal the world. And as he talked about him, he said that he's going to come and he's going to baptize the world. He's going to baptize you and me in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right? He loved to talk about fire, that God was going to come and God was going to purge everything that was unjust, everything that was sin. In fact, he said that that Jesus is going to come with an axe in his hand, ready to chop down the tree, unless you bear fruit of repentance in your life. He was an intense guy. And he saw that the vision of his life was not about his own ministry, but that he was pointing to the Messiah who was to come, his cousin, Jesus. He said, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He's that holy and awesome. And he's who you need to look to. The powers that be uh, were fascinated by him. Herod, who was the king of the Jews underneath the Roman leadership, he heard about John, this voice crying out in the wilderness. And he was fascinated by him. And when John came before power, rather than watering down his message, rather than saying, well, now I've got access to maybe some money here or some fame or maybe a nice, comfy spot in the, you know, in the in the government. He came against him. He spoke truth to power. And it said that Herod was afraid of John, the king, the most powerful man in the land, was afraid of this obscure guy in the wilderness eating locusts and wearing, you know, camel skin because he knew that John was a good man, that he was right with God. There was anointing and power on his life. And he saw that and he loved to listen to John preach, but he said it troubled him when he heard it. He felt conviction. So he was afraid. Well, one day, John kind of crossed the line. You see, Herod was married to Herod's brother, Philip's wife. That was unjust. That was immoral. And John called him out on it in front of other people. He said, Herod, you need to repent. This is unjust. He called him out for that and a number of other evils. And Herod and Herod's wife got upset and they put John in prison. That's kind of the background to the story that we're going to read today. As we read, John is in prison. He is on his way to having his head cut off. He is going to die. They're going to put him to death for calling the king out in his sin. That's where John is. And so he is going to send word to Jesus from prison asking a question. And that's where we're going to be today. So if you'll turn Luke chapter 7, verse 18. John's disciples told him, told John the Baptist about all these things. What are these things? Jesus healing the sick, uh, healing the lame, cleansing the leper, all the miracles we've been reading about. They told him about these things. And John called two of them and he sent them to the Lord. He sent them to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Verse 20. When the men came back to Jesus, they said, John, the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now, hold on. Have you ever thought about this? Like John, the Baptist, uh, born out of an angelic proclamation, prophetic word over his life to prepare the way for God's coming Messiah. He baptizes Jesus He sees the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descend upon Jesus. He hears God's audible voice speak that Jesus was the Son of God in whom God was well pleased. Listen to him. John proclaims before all, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right. This John the Baptist now in jail is asking, wait, are you? The Messiah, or should we expect something, someone else? What's happening here? Oh, wh- what's going on? What's going through John's mind? What's going through his heart? What's going through his thought process? Uh, the Bible commentator Frederick Dale Bruner, in his commentary on Matthew, which recounts this same story talks about this, and I wanted to read you what he wrote, because out of everything that I've read and studied, this makes the most sense of what's going on with John. Here's what he said. He said, Origen, Chrysostom, Jerome, and Augustine in the early church, so early church leaders, and Luther, Calvin, and Bingle, and the Reformation churches, so even all the way up to the 1500s, did not enjoy seeing a hero of the faith like John the Baptist asking a doubting question. And thus many church fathers suggested that John asked the question only for the sake of his disciples, to lead them to John's own unshaken faith in Jesus. For it is often argued, saints do not doubt. If you've heard this passage taught before or read, you know, or studied a little bit on it, the most common interpretation is, yeah, John knows he's about to die, so he's trying to get his disciples to go with Jesus. So he gives them this question, that he doesn't really have, but he gives it to them to get them to go over and listen to Jesus. That's kind of the most common view. Why? Because it's often argued that saints, like John the Baptist, do not doubt. But saints do doubt. Matthew here clearly tells us, and they have good reasons. Why was John in doubt about Jesus? Because, John's coming one, we recall, was mainly a figure of power, mainly a bringer of judgment. Remember, he was going to baptize the world in fire, mainly a carrier of his favorite word, fire, with an ax in one hand, ready to chop down unfruitful trees, and a shovel in the other, ready to sift the chaff in his granary. There is good reason to wonder if Jesus fits John's fiery descriptions, For Jesus has not yet attacked any of the reigning political or economic powers that John spent most of his time preaching against. In his miracles, Jesus has simply picked up the pieces left by evil forces. Today, Jesus' work would derisively be called an ambulance ministry, picking up the crushed victims of evil structures, but failing to combat head on those evil structures themselves. Jesus will fight these structures, especially Pharisaism, but in his own way. Meanwhile, he drives his ambulance around the province in a word, Jesus out in the sticks, healing the sick. Insignificant little individuals here and there, but not doing much to change the basic structural problems in Israel's life. Pharisees still controlled the popular religious life. The Sadducees still controlled the temple. The whole religious ideological system seems thoroughly unthreatened by Jesus' do-goodism in the hills. What's more, John, the propagandist of the new order, is now in prison. And Herod, the embodiment of the oppressive establishment, is still on the throne and is in fact about to have John's head. What kind of Messiah is this? So you get what he's saying, right? saying John had this expectation of this is who Jesus was going to be. He was going to bring judgment. He was going to come against the powers that be, the establishment. He was going to upend it and bring in a new era of justice and righteousness and flourishing for people. And what John sees is Jesus not doing any of that. But he's wandering around the outskirts of society, healing insignificant little people like the widow's son that we read about last week in a nowhere town in the middle of Nowheresville. And meanwhile, John is now in prison, and the guy who was supposed to be overthrown by the Messiah is ruling in power, and that guy's gonna kill John. So you can see why John might be disappointed. You can see why John might feel like, God, I believed you for this, I stepped out, And now (laughs) I'm in jail. I'm going to die. You can see why it's in the question. Hey, Jesus, are you really the one? Right. These type of doubts, this type of disappointment, this type of depression is not just found here in this moment in the life of John. He's not the only biblical hero Great person of God with a fruitful life that went through something like this. I want to share a few with you. Jeremiah in the Old Testament was a prophet. He was known as the weeping prophet because you read his stuff and he's just overcome with sadness so much. And here's what Jeremiah wrote. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. Most likely you haven't seen that as a quote on social media with a cool little background that people like, right? <laughs> Only way you come across that one is if you did like your one year Bible reading and you came to this and you're like, I have no idea. Jeremiah, let's just kind of fast forward. Like, what do you do with that? You deceived me, God. Next prophet that I would like to present to you is Elijah. Elijah was another great prophet of the Old Testament. In fact, you could argue was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. Saw God move in incredible power. And what we see uh, is that he, too, went to a very dark place in his life. First Kings 19 three. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there and he went himself a day's journey into the wilderness. So he leaves his servant behind. He goes by himself into the wilderness to do what? You know, is he going to write a, 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 this great song to kind of lead the people? Is he going to strengthen himself in the Lord? What, what, what's he going to do? He came to a broom bush. He sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. So whereas Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, Isaiah is called the suicidal prophet. Next person, King David, you know, fought Goliath, saw this great victory, became this king, I mean, man of power, mighty man of God. And this is what he wrote in the Psalms. Psalm 13, verse 1 How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? It's not just these great heroes in the Bible, in church history. In the 1500s, there was a Spanish monk named St. John of the Cross, again, a godly man. His most famous writing was a book called The Dark Night of the Soul. And he argued that dark nights like these are not peculiar to one saint here or one saint there, but they are common to the people of God. That we all go through dark nights and it's one of the primary ways that God grows us into maturity. Now you may disagree with this conclusion and that's fine. But my point is, here's another godly person from church history saying, hey, these dark nights are common to the people of God. Charles Spurgeon was known as the prince of preachers. Perhaps the greatest preacher in the English language saw God do incredible things and suffered his entire adult life with severe depression. Mother Teresa, the great saint who loved the poor and loved Jesus by loving the poor, this is what she wrote. She said, depression surrounds me on all sides. I can't lift my soul to God. No light or inspiration enters my soul. Heaven, what emptiness. Not a single thought of heaven enters my mind, for there is no hope. The place of God in my soul Is blank. So, what I want to put before you is that maybe, as Bruner said, saints do have their doubts. Maybe mighty people of God, godly people, have times where they're disappointed in God, where they're upset that things did not work out the way that they hoped they were going to work out, where they prayed for that person, instead of getting better, that person got worse. When they believe God for something, and then it just fell apart. Where they doubted and had times of doubt. Where are you, God? Are you even there? Had times of depression, dark nights that would come over them. And that's where John is right now. And you might be there as well. You might be disappointed in God. You might be doubtful. You might be discouraged, maybe even depressed. And so I want to point you to how Jesus responds. What is Jesus going to do? When kind of this leader that was supposed to be this like anointed man of, you know, faith and power looks more like weak and full of paste and flour, like just falling apart. What's Jesus going to do? Is he going to write him off? Is he gonna cast him aside? Oh, you unfaithful servant. Is that what he's gonna do? Is he gonna criticize him? Is he gonna leave him? Is he just gonna say, I'm done with you? What's Jesus going to do? The first thing that we see is that Jesus brings John comfort. Luke 7:21 says, At that very time Jesus cured uh, many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. And gave sight to many who were blind. Verse 22. So he replied to the messengers Go back and report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. What does all that mean? Well, Jesus and John grew up cherishing the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And in there, there was this prophetic hope, descriptions of when the Messiah would come, when God was coming to set right what was broken, what would be the signs of this? And they were the blind receiving sight, the lame walking, the lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing. So Jesus, as John is doubting, as John is disappointed, John is like, are you sure you're the one? Jesus is not doubting himself, and he speaks in a way that John would understand. He speaks personally to John. says, I am he in whom you have hoped. He brings comfort to John. He speaks comfort. He doesn't dismiss him. He doesn't criticize him, but he brings comfort to him. Verse 23, Jesus says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, get this. Jesus seems to think and seems to articulate that he could understand why someone might be disappointed in him. Seems that seems that Jesus understands, hey, I could see why this would be really hard for you, John. And for all of us. But there are plenty of opportunities to be disappointed in God. And Jesus is acknowledging that. Why else would he say this? But he says, John, if you'll lean into me, if you'll stick with me, if you won't give up, you'll be blessed. Jesus is bringing comfort into John's darkness. Isaiah 42 verse 3 says this, a bruised reed he will not break. This is a prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. You're seeing that in action. You're seeing the way that Jesus deals with doubting, discouraged, disappointed, depressed people. It's not in a harsh way. It's in a tender way. A bruised reed you won't break. A smoldering wick, I like think the candle going out, Jesus is not going to snuff that out. This is what the Psalms call that Jesus is the rock that is higher than we are. When It feels like we have no place to stand and we're so shaky that he is unshaken. And then we have a place to stand in him that he can be strong in our weakness. You're seeing that in action. And if you're there, that's what Jesus wants to do for you. Number two, Jesus brings honor. Verse 24 after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury or in palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. I will send my messenger ahead of you and you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of a woman, there is none greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What does Jesus say? He brings honor to John. In the midst of John's doubt and discouragement and disappointment, Jesus says, John, you're more than a prophet. Jesus speaks the promises of God over him. No, this is who you are. You're a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is who you are. He says, John, of all the people in the world born of a woman, you are the greatest that's ever been born. Jesus speaks honor over John. John, who had given his life to proclaiming Jesus before people, now in his darkness, in his doubt, in his disappointment, what does Jesus do? Jesus steps up and proclaims John before people. Jesus gives him honor. Jesus stands by him in loyalty and defends his friend and brings honor to his name. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says this, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Jesus is saying, John, I've seen the way you've laid down your life. I've seen the way you've believed. I've seen the way you served. I've seen the way you risked. I'm not going to be unjust and forget that. Now that you're doubting, now that you're in a dark place, now that it seems like things are not working out, I will not be unjust to you. I will remember what you have done, what a promise. This is what the Psalms call. This is why the Psalms call God the lifter of our heads. Right? You just imagine John coming down to Jesus like this, and Jesus lifting his head with comfort and with honor. Isn't Jesus awesome? Number three, Jesus brings perspective. Luke seven twenty nine. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, they acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. Now, catch verse 30. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Note that they rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Verse 31, Jesus gives kind of an example, a description of his generation. He says, what can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace that are calling out to each other, saying, we played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. So we played a happy song and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, we played a sad song and you didn't cry. Like people that just can't be satisfied, like it's never good enough for them. Just saying that's his whole generation. Verse 33, John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking. Right. John was fasting and prayer. And they said, John has a demon. Verse 34, the son of man, Jesus, came eating and drinking. So the things they criticized John for, Jesus did the opposite. And they said, you're a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is important for us to see. John 3 tells us this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Jesus is bringing perspective into the situation. We do not live in a perfect world. We live in a very broken world. We live in a world where, like it or not, people have rejected God's purposes for their lives. We live in a world where people, like it or not, love darkness more than light. We live in a broken, sick world. And as the people of God, as godly people, we should not think we are immune to the pain and the heartache and the loss of our broken planet. Believing in Jesus does not set you on a track where it's like, it's all good for the rest of your life. We are not home yet, right? Heaven is perfect. We are going there. Jesus is going there. Jesus is bringing it here. But we're not there yet. And so we should not expect everything in our life to go perfectly according to whatever plan we have. We need to have a realistic perspective. I can miss this so many times and it can get me just worked up so many times where I miss true perspective because I think everything should be perfect right now. And it's not right. We're not there yet. Number four, Jesus brings hope. Verse 35, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. Meaning for you to see wisdom, you have to watch things and let it play out. Meaning the world is sick. The world is dark. This is a painful world that shatters people's lives. And yet Jesus is in the world at work, healing the world. So this world, the way things are now are not the way things they will be. Wisdom will be proved right by her children. Isaiah 25 verse six gives us a description of what God is doing in Jesus. he says, he says this on this mountain, the Lord almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. So just get the picture of a generous God preparing a feast for all the people. That's God's heart. Verse 7, on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. God is swallowing up death. Do you know that means that sickness, one day sickness will bow to the name of Jesus. One day cancer will bow to the name of Jesus. One day your doubts will be, I can see and they'll be gone. One day, we're not there yet. We don't live in a just world. We don't live in a perfect world, but God is at work in our world to bring healing and to heal the whole world, to destroy death and to usher in a new era, the kingdom of God. The sovereign Lord, get this, the sovereign Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. That means our lives, we may have tears, but one day God is going to remove them. He's going to wipe them away. He will remove his people's disgrace from the earth. You might feel ashamed. You might feel disgraced in life. But one day God is going to remove that in his kingdom. Those things do not exist. The Lord has spoken. Verse nine, in that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We have trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We have trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So there may be times where we're like, God, where are you? How long, O Lord, have you forgotten me? But those times are not forever. Jesus speaks hope to John and Jesus would speak hope. To you, in your darkness. I love this. This is the shape us. Christians throughout uh, the history of the church have found such hope and such comfort here in the midst of disappointment, suffering and doubt. First Thessalonians 4:13 says this, "Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Get this, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So Christians, we are to grieve. Grieving is a part of life, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope because of Jesus. We have hope even in the midst of our grief that Jesus is healing the world and that one day death will be no more. So we grieve, but we grieve with a grief that's infused with hope. So just to summarize, Jesus brings comfort. Jesus brings honor. Jesus brings perspective. And Jesus brings hope. Man, I love Jesus. I imagine you do too just after looking at him. It's just awesome. Now we can all learn some things from John as well. Number one, uh, John acknowledged what was going on. Think about how significant that would be. You have this prophetic word over your life. Everyone looks to you. And you said, this is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. And then something happens and you're shaken. <laughs> I imagine it could have felt very intimidating, uh, very embarrassing, very like, what are people going to think of me if I actually send my disciples to ask this question? Like, I'm not supposed to have these questions. I'm supposed to be further along than this, right? I'm, I'm the, the messenger in the wilderness. But there was something in John that we can all learn from of being authentic and taking the time to own what was going on inside of him and to be able to articulate it. If we can't own it and articulate it and understand it, we're not gonna find the healing that John found, right? So that's the first thing that we can do. The second thing is we, John went to his friends. John didn't go it alone. You don't have to go it alone. John shared with his friends, I'm sure he was afraid of feeling judged. I want you to know that you can share these things with friends. At least in this house, in this community, I can tell you, you're not going to be judged for where you're at. You're not going to be judged that you are. I'm disappointed. You're not going to be judged. I'm doubting. You're not going to be judged that you are uh, depressed. John went to his friends and we need to go to our friends. Number three, his friends went for help. You can get help. Sometimes help looks like going to the doctor, taking some medicine, letting it help you. That's God's wisdom and kindness. Sometimes help looks like we have a prayer session and man, it's fire and it's awesome and you walk away and you're a different person, but there is help. And we go for help. Number four, they went to Jesus. John went to Jesus in his dark night. We all have a choice. We can get bitter at God and turn away. We can fall away. But what John did was he fell into Jesus. God, I don't understand. I'm disappointed. I'm depressed. I don't know what you're doing. This feels very unfair. Here I am, Lord. Right? John leaned into Jesus and found the healing that he needed. I'm sure John could have gotten out of being martyred. I'm sure he could have recanted. I'm sure he could have said, Herod, actually, take that back. I support you. I'm sure Herod could have used that as propaganda for his own regime. John found the courage from this encounter with Jesus to stay faithful till the end. We can also learn some things from John's friends. I'm going to close with this. We need to be aware of other people in their own dark nights. And that's what John's friends were for him. They were aware of John's dark night. They were the type of people that John could share that with. And we want to be the type of people that those things can be shared with us. Number two, they cared enough to go to Jesus. When people share things like that with you, rather than just ignoring it or kind of moving on, I have no idea what to do with that. John's friends took John's need to Jesus. We want to be those kind of friends for people who are suffering and hurting. And then number three, they cared enough to come back to John. They could have just stayed with Jesus and be like, well, you're the Messiah. See you, John. But they actually cared enough to go back to him. And I want us to be those type of friends that when people share stuff with us, that we don't just kind of move on because it's like, I don't know what to do. And it just kind of makes me feel awkward to bring it up. But we actually care enough to go to Jesus and care enough to stick with our friends through their dark nights. Thank you. Okay, we are going to close. I realize this hit on a number of sensitive issues. Uh, I cried doing this in the first service. I made it through this one because I realized just the sensitivity of these issues and the pain that so many of us experience when we start talking about this. So I realized that there's a can of worms that's been opened up for many, but I think that's an important can of worms for us to open. We think Jesus is our wounded healer, and as we open them, as we come to them, and it may not get resolved in a moment or a ministry time, it may be a decade. But as we come to Jesus, we will find him to be our faithful, wounded healer. And I want to pray for us as we close. I want to invite you to stand. And our prophetic team had a couple uh, words that they felt like God wanted to minister to. They actually uh, maybe knew the title of this message, but not the content. But when I saw these, I was like, wow. Uh, That's awesome. And we've seen God use these to minister to people. So I'm going to read these to to you. This might be you. So I'd love to invite you for prayer and prophetic ministry after the service. The first uh, is related to community. There's someone here who feels like they're on an island separated from others. God wants to show you the land you're standing on is not an island, but it just appears that way because the tide is high right now. There's nothing actually stopping you from wading through the water to get where others are. You don't even have to swim. You can just walk across the tide. God says this morning, cross the waters today. You don't have to go it alone. There's community for you, and you can step across those waters uh, to community. Second is a picture related to personal attack. There's someone here who's been under spiritual attack, and they came today searching for help. God says, come to me. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard. God showed a picture of him leaning over that person to cover them and making them bulletproof. He's your shield. Come forward to receive prayer and the shield of faith today. So I'm gonna pray for us all. And then if those are you, we'll have our prophetic team available up front and they'd love to minister to you as well. Jesus, we thank you that you're so good. God, we thank you that even in our own dark nights, even when we're disappointed Even when we're depressed, even when we're doubting, that doesn't change your goodness. Lord, you are the rock that is higher than we are. Lord, you are the lifter of our heads. You're the one that brings us comfort, Lord, that doesn't break a bruised reed or shut off a smoldering wick, Lord, but that you bring comfort. You speak honor, Lord, into our shame. God, you speak perspective, into just kind of our narrow points of view, Lord. You speak hope when we feel hopeless. Thank you, Jesus, that you are one that we can run to, oh, that we can run to and find healing. And I pray that for all my friends. I pray that we would experience that. I pray that we would be uh, like John when we're going through that and we'd be like John's friends when we have friends that are going through that. We look to you as our wounded healer. In Jesus' name, amen.